Cobalt headquarters in San Francisco. This is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, their work, and its impact on the information security industry. My name is Caroline Wong, and I'd like to introduce today's guest, my good friend and colleague, Shane Thornley. A little while ago, I received a message with the subject heading, Unsolicited Outreach. It read, hi, Caroline. I wanted to send you a message to let you know how much I enjoy your Humans of InfoSec podcast. The subject matter you explore with your guests is exactly what I attempt to communicate to my team. I'd love to hear about how you think about InfoSec operations, specifically how to keep people motivated when ops-dedicated people are working so hard, but KLO, keeping the lights on, is never or rarely a prioritized project or program. It's a difficult problem when dealing with the leadership of people. Anyway, I hope you're well, and thanks again for your contributions to the community. From there, Shane and I started talking, and I invited him to join us on the podcast. Let me tell you a bit more about Shane. Shane began his career in the military. Through his work in the intelligence community, he became involved in broader cybersecurity policy. And for the past several years, he has been leading teams and initiatives in the private sector. He is currently the Director of Information Security at Zendesk. Shane, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much, Caroline, for that uh, introduction and for having me. It's great to be here. It is my pleasure. We are so happy to have you. You have a fascinating story, uh, and I want to start out by asking you, who was Shane Thornley High school senior. Who was that person? Uh, it was a, a person interested in basketball, interested in social activities, and not deeply interested in academic activities. <laughs> uh, someone with a, a uh, lack of clarity, let's say, on the direction that uh, adult Shane would become. <laughs> and yet here you are. Director of Information Security. Not, not too bad, I would say. Thanks. So you enlisted in the military right out of high school. Tell me right. what you were thinking uh, or perhaps about, you know, what you didn't know about yourself yet. So, uh, yes, I, I did enlist in the uh, active duty Air Force uh, right out of high school. Um, the, the reason for that is uh, I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to be when I grew up. And in a, an unusual moment of teenage clarity, um, I recognized that going into uh, university for uh, the major that I had signed up for wasn't going to be as fulfilling as I wanted it to be. So I, uh, on a whim, went to the uh, Marine Corps recruiters and the Air Force recruiter stations in Long Beach, California, where I'm from. And uh, uh, I decided that I would sign up with, with whichever called me back first, and it was the Air Force. Um, and so uh, in the summer of, uh, after my senior year of high school, I, I enlisted in, in the United States Air Force. That is very cool. And then you found yourself my understanding is learning Arabic. Arabic is, 
I learned uh, the fifth most popular language in the world, found mostly in Asia, the Middle East, and North Africa. Uh, uh, approximately 420 million people speak Arabic, and you are one of those individuals. Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't say these days I really speak Arabic. Uh, those, those skills have become a bit rusty in my old age, but... Um, uh, I, I did uh, learn Arabic uh, when, when I went into the military. I uh, somewhat foolishly agreed to sign up uh, for, uh, in the Air Force with a general enlistment, which basically means you don't have a, a specialty. And at the whim of, of uh, your selected service, they can put you in, in any role you wanted. But I, I had it on good faith from my recruiter that I could become a linguist, I was asked to choose between Mandarin, Chinese, Korean, and Arabic, uh, which uh, in the government's estimation are the most difficult languages for English speakers to, to learn. And uh, I chose Arabic. So I spent a year and a half at the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California, uh, right after basic training. And um, yeah, it just kind of sent me on this, uh, this path that led to where I am today, I guess. Yeah, incredible. And I understand that your enlistment actually wasn't ended as scheduled. Uh, there, there actually turned out to be a major event that occurred. What happened to you? So I enlisted prior to the events of September 11, 2001, with the understanding that I, would, uh, I was committing to a three-year enlistment. After learning Arabic and getting two years into my enlistment, September 11th occurred and they put what's called a, a stop hold on people leaving the military. So uh, as an Arabic linguist, uh, post-September 11th, I was in some demand and um, I ended up serving eight years in the military and an additional eight years as a, uh, an intelligence community civilian. That is fascinating. So Shane, I understand that you were a translator and an intelligence analyst. Uh, can you tell us, without giving away any, you know, secrets, what, is, what does that involve? Who, who are these people that you're translating for? You know, what, for example, might be uh, the roles of two individuals or perhaps a group of individuals uh, that you found yourself uh, with uh, and talking with? So I, I, um, I did find myself speaking with people who were interested in helping the United States government cause in uh, various areas of the world. So um, I spent a lot of time in the Middle East, North Africa, and South Asia where um, Arabic speakers are uh, fairly prevalent. I worked with a lot of fellow intelligence community professionals who were and are the embodiment of that, that exact word, professional, people who are deeply interested in advancing a, a cause. And uh, it, it really was a day-to-day -day effort to both take care of yourself, but also keep uh, an eye on the strategic goal of, of what you were there for. And, and so it's, it's a lot of teamwork, both uh, military and civilian. Um, I, I can't say enough about the people I, I worked with. That is so cool. Shane, can you tell us about 
some of your takeaways from the intelligence community. What I'm hearing is that you had the opportunity to meet people with incredible dedication to their mission, uh, who were doing work that they felt very deeply passionately about. Um, tell me about teams working together. What does team morale look like in some of these environments? And how is security viewed uh, in, in these types of environments? Certainly, that I expect that that's very different uh, than the way that we look at security in the private sector. Yeah, yeah. So, um, great question. Uh, the the takeaways that I, I continue to um, try to live up to to this day um, have been, you know, the importance of analysis and critical thinking skills, and um, just uh, one of the reasons I, I really enjoy your podcast, Caroline, is um, the importance of being a person, a human in the context of more uh, technological security. So understanding what motivates people, how to uh, increase morale, how to take care of the people who actually do the work day to day. And that, that's a, a, a major lesson that I, I took from my government work. It's not uh, that that analysis and critical thinking isn't always formulaic. There's not always a technical solution. There there has to be an appreciation for what makes people people uh, to to get the job done. And then uh, on again on the on the taking care of people front, just leadership of people is something that I I continue to develop and try to mature in, in myself, really just learning to remove obstacles for the team uh, for which you're responsible. Um, I, I often tell my team that my primary job is to allow them to do their job. We, we hire intelligent, hardworking, smart people so they can do their work. And my job as, as a leader is to remove obstacles so they can do their work. And those, those are some, some high-level lessons that I, I continue to, to try and attempt to apply to my, my current role. I really like that. I think that's a very evolved and, frankly, a very, I don't know, business forward is the right way to say it, but I think it's a very mature understanding of a leader and the value that a leader brings to an organization. So Shane, I want to I dive right into the topic that you wrote me a message about uh, when we first connected. I actually asked you, Shane, what's this term KLO, uh, keeping the lights on? And it, it was, when you described it, I recognized it immediately. We had used a different set of three letters to refer to it when I was on the eBay Global Information Security Team. We called it RTB, run the business. Why is KLO, keeping the lights on, and run the business, RTB, why isn't that usually found on a prioritized list of, you know, information security projects yeah so um, I, I have I have a few opinions about this um, 
you know, in, in most businesses, um, day-to-day operations aren't uh, revenue generating. And so oftentimes, uh, day-to-day operations are not prioritized as a, um, uh, a project or a program that gets, uh, say, executive level attention. Um, it, it is running in the background by definition, and um, it, it's maintained and uh, often run by, by people who don't seek a spotlight, <laughs> if, I, if I can be so bold to say that. I feel like in the information security uh, community, we have a lot of natural introverts, and when um, those natural in- introverts are uh, in oper- day-to-day operational roles, it, it's both comfortable, but it, uh, but it also prevents their work from being highlighted in a, in a uh, high-level sort of way. That said, uh, keeping the lights on, running the business, is the engine that runs underneath uh, the, the prioritized uh, projects and programs. Without it, um, the pri- prioritized and highlighted projects and programs wouldn't wouldn't be able to function, and um, advancement wouldn't be advancement of a uh, an information security program wouldn't be possible because there would be no foundation from which to advance. And and I I think that it's it's important that we as leaders highlight the fact that we have people who are laboring under a lot of stress, uh, a lot of duress often. You know, you think about things like incident management, which requires uh, day to almost daily, uh, in some cases, uh, firefighting, uh, very, very tactical involvement, um, but is not prioritized or or not highlighted as, as a project or program. But without it, we, we wouldn't be able to advance any information security uh, uh, program. So um, I, I think that it's natural that keeping the lights on or running the business isn't uh, highlighted because it's not, it's not new, but it is that foundation from which we build uh, solid and um, significantly uh, successful information security programs. Yeah, I'm sort of... Shane and I, listeners, are on a video call. And so he can see my face. And I'm sort of making this disgruntled face. And the reason I'm making this disgruntled face is because it really is unfair. This type of work is extremely important. It is critical to the function of a secure organization. And when I think about different activities like incident response, vulnerability and patch management, threat hunting, operational monitoring, that term firefighting is exactly what these folks do. And if I think about the term we use firefighting and the physical analogy, you know, individuals who literally fight fires get tons of praise and admiration and respect. You know, there, there is this, and they should, you know, um, and it is, it is unfair. And I think that, Shane, you did an excellent job of, of talking through a little bit of like, you know, why is it that way? Um, and so, so I think that's very interesting. 
can you talk to me a little bit about, you know, we've talked about leadership. We've talked about keeping the lights on. Talk to me about your experiences with soft skills. And what I mean is, can you tell me about a scenario where in order to accomplish a business and a security objective, actually what the teams needed was to be able to work well together on a personal level versus necessarily having sort of the most sophisticated technical acumen. Sure, yeah. Um, I, I, I have um, a couple of examples actually come to mind. So um, one being, uh, you mentioned patch and, and vulnerability management. Um, oftentimes the security teams uh, don't have the, um, say, let's execution authority to, to remediate vulnerabilities in a, in a network. Um, it requires a, uh, uh, an approach to an engineering team, for example, um, who does have that execution authority um, to help them prioritize what uh, a security team has analyzed as a risky vulnerability. So there, there's a lot of uh, human interaction there to, to talk about what, what makes the most sense, what aligns with uh, business goals, what aligns with engineering goals, and to, to come to some sort of agreement about the prioritization of uh, deploying a patch. In, in another sense, there are a, a lot of companies, most of which with your familiar, Caroline, um, that have a mentality that is not security forward and um, a culture that develops without a, a security uh, consciousness, let's say. Um, so a cultural shift uh, for, uh, toward a, a more uh, security conscious uh, culture uh, requires a lot of conversation, it requires a lot of meeting, it requires a, a lot of top-down and bottom-up influence. And, and that is a core function in my mind of a successful security organization is shifting culture toward, um, you know, even that two-second pause from a, a developer to think about the security implications of, of what they're about to deploy. That, that is, in my mind, a win for a lot of, a lot of the companies that, that we're dealing with today. And uh, that is solely reliant upon soft skills. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes I think about what happened at Equifax. You know, they had the software component, a patch was released, they didn't get it out on time. They, they suffered some negative consequences. Um, and that is something that, you know, could happen to any number of organizations. And I have also been able to see firsthand in some cases how challenging it can be to, to convince a bunch of people uh, that a patch really does need to be deployed uh, and then to do it. You know, that, that really can get pretty complicated. So Shane, the next question I want to ask you is, what advice do you have for our listeners? How can we as security leaders elevate the folks who perform operational work? How can we appreciate these folks? Uh, what, what kinds of takeaways uh, do you have for, for our listeners today? 
I, uh, I, I don't know that anyone really wants my advice, but I'll give it anyway. I, I think that one of the most important things that where the information security uh, community can uh, focus is in taking care of people. We have a lot of avenues, uh, established avenues for technical certifications. We have a lot of conferences that we attend where we talk about you know, technical solutions to different uh, security problems that we face. We don't place uh, a priority uh, as uh, traditionally on taking care and leading people. So uh, I think it's important that we remember that each of the members of our teams, whether you're a leader of the team, whether you're a member of the team, whether you're an uh, individual contributor, each of the people on your team is also a person and has a life outside of their information security practice. And I think that if we take that to heart, we will find we get a lot of uh, a lot of traction and we build a stronger team. Very cool. I agree 100 percent. Shane, speaking of being people who have stuff going on other than uh, our information security work, um, because we're on a video call, you know, it's interesting. Maybe one of these days we should do like the video version of the podcast, that'd be kind of fun. Or like maybe, you know, we can do a live one at, at an event one of these days. I don't know. There's lots of, lots of cool opportunities. So what, what, our, what our listeners cannot see that I can see uh, is that you have some really gorgeous tattoos on your arms and perhaps on other parts that I cannot see. Would you share with our listeners uh, what, what's the deal with your tattoos? Yes. Uh, thanks for noticing. Um, I actually got them uh, near you in Portland. Uh, I have on each of my forearms a, a half sleeve of the birth flowers of my two children. So daffodils and larkspur are on, on each of my arms for my, my two very crazy kids. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Shane, that's just wonderful. I mean, that just touches my heart. Um, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Thank you so much for joining us on today's show. Thank you for sharing your story with us uh, and for being a supporter. Uh, it's been my true pleasure uh, to get to know you. The, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. Humans of InfoSec is brought to you by Cobalt a pen test as a service company. You can find us on Twitter at humans of InfoSec.